When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides, take me Give me all you got! Listen, Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like you. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Whew! It feels strange to say that again, but sometimes there is an absolute undeniable guest that pops up. And just makes me want to, as we've just discussed off air, whip out that old Model T and see if that engine still kicks over. It is my distinct pleasure and honor to have the only man that connects, besides Michael Mann, the only man that connects LA Takedown and Heat, the unbelievable character actor whose IMDb is staggeringly intimidating, and the Ralph of our Heat a man who we've had so much fun talking about, the legend, Xander Berkeley. Xander, welcome to One Heat Minute. Blake Howard, I'm delighted you're adding one more heat minute to your <laughs> One more, one more time. Look, uh, uh, Twitter is a... I, I, people often say that like Twitter's like a, a dead zone on the internet and it's the worst place ever, but I, I, always, I always say to people, look, maybe one heat minute Twitter. Like my experience of Twitter is nothing but this beautiful place where, you know, randomly I, I sort of contextualized that the Joker has 11 Academy Award nominations and Heat has zero. And then suddenly I'm talking to Macon Blair and suddenly I'm talking to CM Punk and then suddenly I'm talking to you and then this thing happens and it's just absolutely beautiful that uh, I was able to connect. Thank you for making time. Uh, to, to be a part of this special bonus episode of of One Heat Minute. And I, I guess I just have to ask, you're the guy who was in both, but I can't do anything except talk about the actual scene, your actual character, Ralph. Please just tell me everything. Tell me everything that you can remember. We would love to hear it. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, and, it's, and, I'm, and I'm devastated that we didn't get you for your own minutes in the sequence of the show. Uh, you devastated what? Uh, that, I, that we didn't have you on for your minutes while it was happening. It would have been such a beautiful touch oh. to have you there talk about the but, but the great film critics Sean Burns and Courtney Howard, uh, uh, Bostonian is Sean and um, and uh, Courtney writes for a Variety. They both uh, adore you and adore that scene and love couples fighting in movies. And we had a great time talking about it. But uh, thank you. Please tell us everything about Ralph and everything you can remember about Heat, and then we'll dive through your amazing. You know the fact that you know the iterations of this movie better than anyone. Yeah, well, the, the, you know, the Heat uh, experience obviously followed my L.A. takedown experience and my, my Wayne Grow experience preceded my Ralph experience. And, <laughs> and I, I don't know whether I would have 
uh, reiterated my my Wayne Grow or not because um, we had an amazing time doing that, and I I was being called to uh, for my availability on Heat, but was uh, was doing another film at the time. Was committed. I had committed pretty early on to barbed wire um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was only available a very, very uh, limited amount because that thing was just dragging on. And, uh, oh my God, that's, that's just the way it worked. Every, everything you say yes to, you're, you're saying no to other things <clears throat> without knowing it in our, in our strange the merciless vicissitudes of, of Hollywood <laughs> is such that you never know what you're what you're going to be turning down by by accepting something and and um, and so but at least I, I still had a day that they were able to figure out and they were willing and, and able to uh, figure out a part that I was able to come in and do and it was Ralph and uh, I didn't know until you know I think a day or so before what I was going to be coming in to do and. And uh, didn't require a great deal of uh, homework, preparation, <laughs> research. Um, I was banging Al's wife, you know. And casually wearing sweatpants better than almost anyone has ever worn sweats in a movie. So I think people are going to be shocked not to hear that you've researched just the, the right sweats to wear <laughs> in that scene. Yeah. You know, it's just, I was kicking around. It was the next morning, you know, watching some TV. And, and uh, you know, in the original script, I will say, it was a hard day uh, uh, to come in. It was a small part. It was a very small part. I'm, I'm sh- I've continued to be shocked and amazed over the years that people remember it as fondly and as clearly as they do. Um, I, I think it's a testament to, uh, to, to the the power of Al's performance and uh, my, my merely needing to react to it in the moment. Um, and the, the, the sort of the, you know, comedy always comes out of contradiction. Yes. And the, the stark contrast, the absurdity of his, the, the level of his intensity <laughs> and rage and him taking it out on the television <laughs> rather than directly at her or me. Um, it's just funny. It, it's a, it's a comic moment and it's a little bit of just the pure genius that is, was Michael Mann at that moment, uh, knowing that he had Alan, knowing the, you know, it's like we all grew up with Alan, you know, as an, as an actor in New York in the seventies, you know, he was a god, you know, from The Godfather to Serpico to Dog Day Afternoon. It just, and I, I went on to do other things with Al after that and, and, and actually some theater stuff at the Actors Studio uh, Theater in L.A., um, three different plays, and it was always a great experience. But there was something about getting to be in a scene with him where he gets to do his classic Al Pacino explosion. <laughs> yes. And uh, there was something really funny in the scene uh, originally as written um, because he uh, he asked me he basically, who are you? <laughs> and, and I had to actually say, I'm, I'm Ralph. 
and wow, and, and that, there was something, and I was so excited about doing that scene, knowing the way it was going to go, and and I was completely pissed off that Diane Venora decided that no, my character would introduce them, oh. and like, what? That's not funny. That no, that's the whole scene was that moment, <laughs> like, and you know, and. The the, the, the the tension building and just like in the guys in the room like for him to say who's this who are you and my my only <laughs> your that's response. why they named the guy Ralph <laughs> your like, other response Ralph Ralph <laughs> yeah and and that would have just started this and it would have been like a 10 times more memorable scene uh. and for whatever reason because actors do that sometimes because they've got a bigger part they don't put themselves in the skin of the other actor and go like, I've got a hundred moments in this movie. This is his only moment in the movie. <laughs> and I'm going to like, Oh, because I'm going to think that everybody's going to be thinking about how this is going to work from my character's point of view, that they're going to think, Oh, this isn't a real moment because I'm not introducing them. Nobody's thinking about that. They're just in the moment and they're going to think it's funny. If he turns and says, who are you? And all you have to do is not be they, 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 And I even turned to Michael. I, I, I got to say it. You're kidding, right? She's not going to step. You're not going to let her do this, are you? And he goes, "No, it's been a nightmare." Look, look, hey, I, you'll save me a headache if if I, I know, I know, it's it's a terrible choice. It's killing the laugh. It's it's it would be brilliant to let you do the line as written, but I I've had so many headaches and I just don't need one more. And so, thank you for doing the part. I'm going to make this up to you. I promise. He never did. Um, and I love him anyway. Fuck him. Um, but uh, yeah, you know. So, but you know that, what? It's 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 funny, Xander, that you said not that. Right? Go well. It's funny that you said that because when I think about it, and maybe no one in the world has thought about it more than me, is that the out the outro of your interaction kind of does all the stuff that that sort of underscores Justine's dissatisfaction. You know, she gets to say the, you know, the, I had to demean myself with Ralph just to get through to you, et cetera, line. And so the the twisting the knife of this is Ralph, it certainly doesn't have yeah. the same, it doesn't have the same comedic effect. It's got a more of a dagger. It's like that she would want to introduce you to underscore it even more. Whereas the the shock of coming in and seeing a man just sitting down in sweats watching your TV is actually funny. And now, and, what's, and the name Ralph is funny. It's funny. And this it's is Ralph, so it's like funny. he wanted to steal. And, and I've dealt with this before with stars. I, you know, when they they, they want to steal your funny line, and like, it's what so, the fuck? It's You've so got funny. a million lines. This is my only line. <laughs> you really? And <laughs> so and, funny. And it's like. No, wait a minute. It's not as funny if you say it. And plus, she would say it like disdainfully, like this, this guy's an asshole. Well, then why are you banging him? Um, y- you know, it's like it's y- y- you wouldn't be proud that you're banging a Ralph. <laughs> and, the, the, and if you are, y- you wouldn't be you wouldn't be proud of his name. Uh-huh. So, if you want to deal with the reality, you probably wouldn't want to come out and say it. Yeah, so, yeah. Tr- truth told. So it's not even as truthful. It's just an actor's ego 
wanting to steal another actor's moment. Man. And, and so I was furious at, at, at that. Like I come in, I do to do one scene. This is my own. This is, and this is a funny moment in that one scene. And somebody who I don't know, I've never met and suddenly just said, Oh, they're going to take it away. And, <laughs> So like, can I, can I say from an outside? The great irony is that it didn't matter. At it the didn't end of matter. The day, people still remember between Al and me, the, the interaction in that other, in the next moment that followed. You have, it's about 50 seconds in this movie that br- a bridge is, you know, it's, it's, it's about 50 to sort of 70 yeah, I seconds. Yeah, would have had the other. When you add. If I got to stay Ralph. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you would have had another minute. But exactly what you said about, the the beauty of the comedy is in the sort of hypocrisy of the moment of like and of the complete dire contrast of you're just your composure of like i am so awkward like i think that that's what's tough in movies yeah. and what you what you did and what was so great about this script did was it was the authenticity of Every time you'd seen a guy who'd been sleeping with the hero's wife, almost in any gangster movie before, it is a it is a recipe for violence. It's like I'm going to take it out on him, and it's this guy's fault, and he's banging yeah. my wife. Yeah. But the flip in this scene is all the agency is with with Diane Venora's Justine. At this moment, she is doing something intentionally to hurt Vincent. And what's great about Vincent, and this is what we love about Al and you in this scene, is that you guys are both pawns. Like, he's pissed off. That's undeniable. He's extremely pissed. But what's so cool is, is like, I can't really 100% be mad at this guy. I can't. I'm not going to hit yeah. him. I'm not going to no, hurt I'm, him. No, I'm pissed. I, I'm mad. I, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to hurt yeah. him. I'm just, I'm just annoyed. And the thing that I actually take more umbrage with is how casually he's watching my fucking television. <laughs> and it's a, yeah, it is a, that's what's pissing me off. It is yeah. a magical scene. It is, there are so, and I want to tell you this to your face because I told many people off air and on air in the entire main run of One Heat Minute. There are like, there are minutes that people requested and you would, you'd be wondering, oh, what, what are those minutes? Genuinely, the most requested minute of the entire series was Robert De Niro's tunnel scene. There was a lot of people who were really uh-huh. enraptured with that scene. The number two requested minute, Ralph. Get out. <laughs> Everyone wanted to talk about you. It, because what a lot of people forget, and this is what you see when you sit on the big screen. I was so lucky in Oz last year. There's a little repertory theater in Ranwick called the Ritz um, in Sydney. And they had a 35 mil print of heat and it was beautiful. And I saw it also on the, uh, the brand new sort of 4k digital edition last year. And what was so magnificent is when you play it in a theater and it's got a lot of people in it, heat knows how to take the, what like is like this really laser intensity of the whole movie and just cut through it with some levity to kind of help you get through the whole movie because it's long and it's intense and it's focused and, you know, sound plays a huge part. And those moments, like, people roar when when Al is going with Ralph. People roar at his just humour when he hangs up on people in the car. Like, he's such a, a, a laugh machine in that movie, um, but in the best way possible. Yeah, and, because and, the, the tension is so extraordinarily high yes. that 
when he keeping it within the reality of the character entirely. Yes. It's one of his great, great performances because he, he doesn't ever betray the reality of that pressure cooker cop. No. And so his intensity is warranted and justified. Um, and a hundred percent. And the fact that he's after this guy and the, 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 the spring is being wound tighter and tighter the whole time. So it just, uh, it, it, it is, it is a great performance and it's a great moment within that because it, it all the comedic moments, because they, they help to release that tension in these little increments. Yeah. It's, 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 it's exactly what you need. And it's, also, there's that gallows humor. You've done it in many of your roles I watch, which is just like you say the you say the sort of funny thing at the worst moment, and that's what makes it funny. You know, it's it's that's you, you kind of need that and that gallows humor with cops and people who are well, those intense characters. One of the things that people you just uh, it's it, it's always amazing to me that it's not written. I've ad, I've added those lines. Yes, in so many things, where I've added the at least the delivery of it uh, because it's it's something that writers don't tend to put in, directors don't tend to think of, and actors don't generally offer up, and you don't see it as often as you should because people are so earnest and want to play the how how intense it is or how sad it is or how uh, depressing it, or in any given situation that they're afraid to do anything that isn't spelling that out to the audience. Yes. When in fact, in truth, when people are up against it, they are they are constantly trying to offset by diffusing yeah, through diff humor, diffuse, deflect one way or another to keep their spirits up or to keep themselves from getting freaked out or just do whatever. <laughs> There's a great Artie Lang story where he talks about, he was helping another comedian, one of his friends, um, who was, you know, Artie Lang is, you know, sort of infamous, if you like, for having a drug addiction problem. And he said at one point in his life, he was about to do one of those Comedy Central roasts and one of his friends had had a really bad trip and was just going off the rails. And so Artie spent like, you know, 36 hours in preparation for this roast to just get his friend in a state that he could stand on a stage at Comedy Central and roast. And after helping him and vomit and shit and all those bad things that you help your friend, he gets up there and his friend gets up on the dais and he looks up, he looks over and the first person he addresses is Artie. He goes, Artie Lang, everyone, look at this fat fucking drug addict. And Artie <laughs> just was flabbergasted because he just spent 36 hours like sobering this guy up, helping him, like getting him into shape to do this thing. And the first thing the guy does is like abuse him in the most way to deflect all the shit that's happened. And then Artie looks at him while everyone's cackling, laughing, and the guy just shrugs his shoulders like it was there. I had to take it. And that's what this movie gets. It's like in that moment, in heaps of moments, uh, you know, my friends would tell you that like there's been many times I've hung up on friends in the last two years where I'm like, that's wonderful. And I just hang the phone up because that's, that's the Pacino delivery. That's that great chemistry you guys have is like that right in that moment. And, you know, all the, all, another little element I think that maybe adds in, and I can tell you another anecdote that, that it reminded me of is uh, I, I stand up to leave because this is awkward. I'll leave you two alone to discuss. Yes. I stand up, and at the same moment as he tells me to sit down, I, I also spot right right before that, as I recall, and I don't think we ever got the close-up of it or shot to it. I can't remember even, because I haven't seen it in forever. But uh, 
I see his gun in his waistband. Like, oh, that's bad. That's bad. When when the angry ex shows up with a fucking gun, <laughs> and so I'm both as his percussive. Sit down, Ralph. Is is also, uh, you know, motivated by oh, he's got a gun. <laughs> I'm oh. not a gun guy. <laughs> so, you know, like, I'm just a guy who sweats who likes to watch sports. And I, I, I really, I want to leave. Okay, you don't want me to leave? I'll sit down. Um, Man. So there's all of that happening. But, you know, I'm a lot taller than now. Yes. So there's, there's also the contrast of, like, I'm standing up. He doesn't want that contrast no. of this guy towering over him. He doesn't want him to leave. No. He wants to keep the awkwardness. He wants to keep his power. You stay here, motherfucker. I just want my TV. And then you two can have your hell together. Yes. After I. Because when I, because when I, because when I go, at least the one thing he knows he's got basically no power in this situation. He takes away the TV. He really knows. He's like, in that moment, at least I'm going to give her the discomfort of him going, you know, leaving Ralph to say to Justine, what the fuck was that? Like, you've got a husband. He's got yeah. a gun. Well, I'm out of here. Like, at least maybe she might be chided by Ralph on the way out. You know, at, at the very most, that's what Vincent can hope for in that, in that, in that sequence. That's so great. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It is so funny to hear you talk about, to, to hear you do the Ralph sit-down line that was said to you and it's just magnificent. It's a, a huge highlight. So I want to ask you, <laughs> so I have to ask LA takedown. So for folks who are listening and you're huge heat fans, you may not know internationally because it's a much harder thing to acquire that LA takedown is a 1989 television movie that was shot by Michael Mann that maybe was like a proof of concept for the heat story to be turned into a television series. I think that that was the original intent. I think Xander will be able to correct me on some of this in behind the scenes, but from, from, from the outside in, it was always like, this was a television movie. The intent was that we would take these characters, particularly Vincent Hanna. We would take Vincent Hanna. He would be a cop. He'd be running down these big gangs and scores and would use the sort of essence and the, you know, that, that potency of that heat script that we now know so well, anyone who's listening and loving um, heat and loves one heat minute would know. And all the fellow obsessives have been on the journey. That's how we've, always appraised it but it's a very it's a very tv movie cast like there's not any big players until there's you xander berkeley there's no one who's like a film actor and so your wayne grow in stark contrast to kevin gage's wayne grow is much more of a like a wily slippery aware of your rights kind of guy whereas kevin gage takes wayne grow to that complete utterly nihilistic edge, psychopathic edge. And you've definitely got those elements of that intensity and that, and, and that there, there is definitely some screws loose, but you, you play it in such a different way. So folks, LA takedown, I don't know where you can get it in most countries. You're going to have to go online, seek it out. I think you can buy it. If, uh, you can buy it on Amazon. You may be able to get it like a DVD and make sure you have a regional player to actually check it out. But the absolute highlight is Xander Berkeley's Wango. And so you are a guy who was there in 1989, a full six years before they're really making this movie, what was what was Michael's feelings to you about taking this thing that was heat sitting in his you know in his his you know dustily gathering dust in a drawer that he'd been working on all the way back since Thief? What was he? How did he frame it to you? Was this like he wanted to do it as a movie, a TV show? Could you help us sort of like clear up some of yeah, that? Yeah, let me give you the uh, 
you, you clearly don't have all the information yet, so let me impart some to you. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. All right. Let's do this. Um, yeah, I had done uh, three episodes of Miami Vice. I did a double episode as one character mm. playing Sheen Easton's manager. Uh, Tommy Lowe, we called him Tommy Blow because he was a coke <laughs> and a hot and, uh, and I blew up in a Porsche. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever been offered, straight offered. It's such a, it's like a, just a thing of beauty as an actor, a young actor. Um, I had just done Sid and Nancy. And so the director was a, a really cool British director who I'm friends with to this day named Colin Bucks. He was directing some Miami Vices and he had just seen Sid and Nancy. He was, I want that guy. And, and I played the, the, the drug dealer in Sid and Nancy. So I, like I'm, I'm the cokehead. You know, <laughs> you're perfect. It was an easy thing. And I, I, I did the New York, I was a New Yorker in, in that. I saw this guy as a New Yorker, fast talker. <clears throat> I, I used. Because you're Brooklyn born. You're Brooklyn born, right? You're born in, born in New York? Yeah, I was born in Brooklyn. And you um, lived, and lived in Jersey. Yeah. Yeah, and then I went to school in Massachusetts College, and then I went to New York after college, and and uh, and I I there was there was friends that I met through my sister who'd gone to art school in New York, and they had grown up in the Bronx, and they had some dealings with drugs. I will say that, <laughs> but they were just characters. Even though Ernie was an art guy, he had fallen into a, he's he's no longer with us, so I could say it. He had fallen into a, a, a line of work that was a little um, lucrative. <laughs> uh, but, and, and I always wanted to be, I, I somehow became their mascot. Ernie and Jackie Baldero took me on, and, and because they could get me into Studio 54, and I was like, I, I'd left college early to come and study acting in New York. And um, I, I just, I, these guys were such characters. I knew I would be able to use them and I would be able to use if I came in. So we would get go to go out to studio 54 and they had all these crazy cool girls from, you know, Puerto Rico, Morocco. They just had all these fabulous girls that they would get together with. All, and they would all go in a posse. They were all hot, beautiful, fun, funny. And then we did dance and go, you know, and get, put the music on and everything before you go, come on with Sandy. You gotta come with us. We're going to have to 54. Come on, Sandy. You got it. And, <laughs> So, all right, all right. Okay. You can't say no to that. And I don't know why they like that. It's just a matter. Of, I would wear Fiorucci clothes and stuff that be like the blonde guy. They were all <laughs> Italian. And, uh, and, and getting into 54 involved a look thing and everything. But they were also, I didn't really know, but they were helping provide uh, whatever. Some at services. Studio 54 Some services. Grease the, there was, they were always going to get in. And, and that was really, I just, just like, I like to go to CBGB's and see the punk scene. I felt like I was a, my eyes were journalists and yeah. I had to take in everything that was happening in New York in the late seventies and did it just like for future filmmaking purposes. And that's strictly it. I, that's the only reason I wanted to go to studio before <laughs> as a 19, 20 year old. Um, and that's not true. Um, but <laughs> So I, I, th this, uh, I, these are, there are sometimes I say, I wish that one hit was a video podcast so you could see Santa's face right on that delivery. But I think right, we got it. Yeah, I think right. you can hear it. You can hear it. You can hear it. I, the enthusiasm. But anyway, just that, that little bit of time before we'd go out 
when these guys, Ernie and Jackie, would still have a little bit of business that they would do. Mm. And these characters would come in to, and they, were, they weren't like, you know, low life. They weren't drug dealer low lives. It was very well to do people coming mm. in and, and they were artists and people on the scene in New York. And, and they had a, a crowd that were cool, but just watching them do the hustle. Yeah. It's just like watching them get ready to get, you know, they wore their, their shiny, fun, wacky disco clothes and just everybody getting geared up to go out. And then the friends slowly showing up because we would all get in the cab and go and, or cabs. And so seeing the whole hustle, I, I would, would ask myself that sometimes cops would come by that they were cousins and stuff. Amazing. It was just hairy and scary and funny and wildly entertaining. <laughs> and I just was, was just, I was younger than all these people. And like, what am I doing here? What is this? How do I have anything? My sister would never come here. She would go to art school with them, but not <laughs> hang out with them. And uh, how did I end up here? And I ended up using Ernie for the character I played in Sid and Nancy, Bowery Snacks. And I ended up using Jackie for the, the character I played in uh, um, Miami Vice because the, the guy, I just remember there, there were a couple of lines like, hey, it's a crazy business. You're up, you're down, yeah, hey, just like the old days. <laughs> you know, there was just a couple of things that was just exactly like Jackie Ball, that arrow. And then we go on, Sam, you're going out, come on. You're too freaky. <sighs> they were just always like these guys, not like how I grew up. Yeah. I, I may have been born in Brooklyn, but I, I was definitely raised in Jersey, New Jersey yeah. <laughs> and uh, nice middle class, New Jersey. And so I, I was character searching and I played a you drug were just dealer. Putting, in, you were just putting in, them all in your file. You just like yeah, in your internal you file. file. And, that, and that's what research, you know, you get to do that. And, you know, I, uh, I, I think I struck a chord with that character and, and with the casting director had, had seen Sid and Nancy and, and approved my getting the offer with the director said, Oh, he's great. Yeah. Okay. So they made the offer. I came up with a completely different character. They didn't know it was based on the cousin of <laughs> the character that I'd based the other character on, but it was perfect for their purposes. Cause the guy was very jacked up and coked up. And, uh, and I didn't do, I, I was allergic to cocaine. I was not a cocaine guy. <laughs> um, but I, I watched people do it. Yeah. <laughs> And these guys did it and just the, the way they would talk and the way they would carry on, the way it infused their personalities was a spectacle to behold. Oh my and God. I, I think that sort of captured Michael's imagination enough to where, and Bonnie, there was an authenticity that I could bring to a character like Wayne Grow in the original. It was, it was a pilot. Miami Vice was ending. It had been the hottest show on television. hundred percent. They were going, and it, Hannah was the original title of the pilot. They were going to shoot in LA. It was going to capture the way nothing had before or since my wife just finished doing a show. Her character just finished, but they're still doing the show. Um, she played Bosch's ex-wife. Yeah. Uh, but the show is called Bosch. Bosch. And that, that show to me shoots, the, the underground LA scene, the way Michael wrote it in the original script. It was such a cool script. Not only did he get 
the gangster lingo, the language, the rhythmic language of the street was just so pulsing through that original script. But also the, you know, Atomic Cafe and, and all these places that only real hipsters in, in L.A. knew about, the underground scene and, and the locations. And because, like, everybody goes to L.A., they see certain things, but only the really cool people <laughs> knew, knew about these places these, that were locations in this script. So yeah. it was a very uh, only people know project. that there's a only people know that you go to a certain part of Koreatown and go under a shoe store to find a nightclub that you know they, that yeah. pe- people aren't aware of that in Australia as an example to find that's the right. scene. That's right, and it wasn't like you know some made up. It wasn't fiction. It was based on the real thing. Yeah, and and it was just a great script, and I just remember freaking out when I read it. And I had played a couple of psychos prior to uh, that at that point. And I had approached it, <clears throat> approached other characters from uh, both an intellectual standpoint and an emotional standpoint. And in both cases felt worse for the wear afterwards. Like it just, um, there's a toxicity sometimes in playing those kinds of characters. Yeah. But to be occupying that headspace, right? Because you're just like that. You're, you're, oh, yeah. you're as a great, great character actor as you are. You just sort of immerse yourself in that, and then you just got to wear that like an outfit, and it it must stain a little bit. No matter how much you try not to bring it home, I mean, obviously you're not going to do anything stupid, but you just you bring an energy. Yes, that is really hard to set down yes. once you set it in motion, <clears throat> because it's it's um not like an no it's like when you're working on an accent or something you just you have to do it over and over and over to get it mm-hmm. and then you almost don't want to stop the accent when you start to <clears throat> because it then it feels like you're you're putting on an accent but if you sort of stay in the mode it feels like you're just that's how you speak you uh, know it's, can, it's can, a weird thing especially when you're I a say, younger actor can i say i love that <clears throat> you actually talk about the function of that because there's this mysticism that comes up in method acting which is like oh he wants to stay in character and he wants to do this but you know you get someone functionally like uh, as an example another michael man alumni like will smith mastering the muhammad ali accent like to, for his performance, they said that he used to do it at home all the time. He talked to the kids in the accent, he'd do everything. But then when you watch the movie, it's seamless. And the thing for me as an outsider yeah. in Australia, the thing that infuriates me, nothing else. And uh, like nothing else is, I don't think people realize how goddamn charming someone like Eric Banner is as a performer when he's doing an American accent, because it feels forced sometimes. Whereas like, if you watch him in chopper, when he's doing an Aussie accent and he's playing a psychopath, even though it's his native tongue, like it, if you haven't got that accent down, it is an immediately, immediately takes you out. And so, yeah, it's yeah, just it, one, exactly. the fun, exactly right. the function is the rhythm. You, you've done it so many damn times. It sounds natural. It has to be so in your bones that it doesn't take you out and put you in your head. Yes. <clears throat> and, and, and the thing with, with somebody that's deranged, somebody that's, that's really psychologically damaged and that if you approach it from a psychological point of view or an emotional point of view, or even if you just go through it, you know, as I say, intellectually, there's a kind of, it takes a toll and, 
And even if you set it aside when you come home and you do your research and you do your preparation and everything up to a point, it's, it, it just, it eats at you. And it, it, it feels like, you know, it's like eating something that's poisonous. Yes. And, um, something that's, that's not good for you. Yes. If you're a sensitive, I'm a sensitive guy. <laughs> I play a lot of, I think one of the, you know, I'll get into the theory is I'll try to stay on topic. So I won't go into all of that, but, um, the, the thing I did to protect myself this time was, um, right around the same time, a friend of mine, uh, was Jennifer Allen was writing a book on Richard Ramirez, the Hillside Strangler. Yes. And the phenomena of the fans that he had, um, the groupies and that the perverse phenomena of that somebody could kill all these women and then all these women want to marry him. But what is that? And, uh, she was writing this book. She was a great journalist. She ended up writing for the Rolling Stone and, and oh, she's just a great writer. And we were good friends. And I came down to do some drawings for her because I'm a, I'm an artist and a painter and a sculptor and I draw all the time. Yes. I don't know if you know that about me. Yes, I do. So, uh, she wanted some of my drawings in her book, maybe. And, um, so I came down with her and I was just fascinated anyway to see what that kind of a court. So I went down to the, 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 the court building in LA where the hearings were, I, just another form of research worth doing sometime right before I went in on the, the rank wing thing and sat at the back of the courtroom and did some drawings of him. And he was so diabolically reptilian. And he was, he was like, his features were so cut like handsome that it was vulgar and grotesque. He was ugly. He was so chiseled. And, um, and the way he moved, he was, it was the eighties and ladies, he was very, uh, he was weirdly in a suit while shackled behind his hands, behind his back and stuff. And remember hands were, and his ankles were shackled and, but he's wearing this like trendy, you know, suit with, uh, you know, shoulder pads and his hair sort of started in the middle and sort of like, looked like shoulder pads going on (laughs) on either side. His cheekbones looked like they were shoulder padded. And, (laughs) and, uh, and he moved and he just sort of would rock as he was just sitting there and you it was just, just did that fact. and you just look like you're in the cabin of the truck at the beginning of LA takedown <laughs> that rock you 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 literally have that rock in the opening in the opening scene of LA takedown yeah yeah well i used his physicality because i didn't want to go there intellectually just something purely physically mm. and because there's just something i did in the auditions it's just something where he's running and just went yes Oh, it's so and creepy. Was so, he felt me drawing him at the back of the court. And he just, he like a snake went, swiveled all the way around, locked eyes with me, clocked me, oh. and swiveled back. It was so reptile and so snake-like and so creepy. Oh, jeez. That I went, okay, that's, that's disgusting. That's freaking me out. And, um, 
and and when the script came shortly after, I went, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm that's... just going to do this physically. As it turns out, when we did the uh, the big confrontation scene, I ended up, well, you know, first of all, I don't know, it was maybe a combination of the fact that they did the, the special effects. I was wearing a polyester shirt that was open. Yes. And, um, and they had, uh, a special effects where the, the, the huge shotgun is going to be blown through the door. Yes. Or I'm going to blow the shotgun through the door to, to kill, to kill, kill the De Niro yeah. character, yeah. Alex's character. Um, and, you know, I'm looking through the, the, the eye hole and there's, the, the, the door is going to blow up and they can't test it. So it's just going to be like, take your chances, you know, and it's always like the camera department behind plexiglass shields <laughs> with helmets and, and headphones. And you're, you know, they're 10 feet, 20 feet behind you. And, and you're got dirty, a, dirty, dirty. And you've got a polyester shirt open, <laughs> hanging out and the explosion that's about to take place on you. Oh my God. That's, that's how we roll. Like chuckleheads that we are. Because, <laughs> hey, oh, they all been a picture. You'll be in the movie. <laughs> Where do I stand? Oh, Look, I'll my face <laughs> up in there. <laughs> stand uh, right in front of that shotgun blast. Yeah. Yeah. What What about this? And every time you look back and you see them all like hiding behind the plexiglass shields, 20 feet behind you, go, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> Uh, guys, they know that could I, I have just no. a small sheet of plexiglass to cover my chest because it's open? Nipples. Right <laughs> so I could just protect my maybe some. Um, and so, somewhere, whether it's the soap uh, bomb explosives and the gunpowder and everything else that exploded on me, or just the accumulation is I was getting hives before that mm. just I think because of the character, I think there's something toxic in just the physicality that I was doing. I wasn't thinking bad thoughts. I wasn't thinking about killing people. I wasn't, I wasn't feeling anger. I wasn't, I was just, it's, it, it was like I would just drop into it. And it, it's funny because I remember like working on Sid and Nancy, for example, there's Gary, Gary Oldman uh, is one of those actors who could just drop into it. He would just mm. drop into Sid. And Chloe was different. She she stayed, you know, she was more the American and uh, approached it much more sort of in, in that method way. And, and, and Gary almost to, to mock her sometimes. Go, my dog is dead. My dog is dead. And he would just become <laughs> this character. <laughs> magically transformed. And, um, you know, it's a British American thing like the, the Olivier, the Olivier. Uh, Hoffman. Yep. You're just acting it might be a more. Um and here I I I was getting the hives going, Oh shit, I thought I was like protecting myself and it's still getting to me. It's crawling under my skin, this guy. Oh. A creepy, creepy guy. And then with the gun after the explosion, I I I got hives in my throat. 
and my throat closed up and they had to race me to the emergency room. It's the only time ever anything like that ever happened to me. Wow. And luckily we were shooting right by the hospital near the airport yes. in that building that I get kicked out of. It just happened right there. And they shot me up with steroids and I was able to keep breathing. <laughs> and they gave me some weird fucking Benadryl drugs that I've never taken before or since. And so we shot the rest of the scene where he's like, you got two choices. You can bunk your head to the bars or you can bunk your head to the toilet. And I go, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even talk. I'm like, and I said, a lot of stuff he uses. Just use it. Just use it. Just use it. We got to shoot the scene. Yeah, and then was, before your it. unceremonious kick out the window. You know, I've been kicked out of three, four windows <laughs> to, to meet my demise. Oh. Somebody's, they've been working on my death reel lately and oh, they got killed in three planes and that's the, it's set to the William Tell Overture because it, it, it <laughs> these climaxes keep building and so the, 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 and it's always you spend, whenever you get kicked out the window, you spend the whole day that day with uh, your stuntman dressed like you and the dummy dressed like you and the stuntman because you go to <laughs> please, the window. Please tell me there's a photo. The tell, please tell me it's there's a photo of the three of you together. There has to be you know, somewhere. If we had these things now, oh my God. I would always have it. Oh my God. But I did all of my, my falls through the window before there were iPhones and I didn't get somebody there with a camera to take a picture. Wow. That's devastating. But, but it's hysterical, especially like I remember one with uh, Dabney Coleman, a movie I did with him where I had to fall from 30 floors. And I was wearing a toque because it was being shot. I was playing a Canadian psycho. And so I had a toque, a uh, little hat there. And I had to fall from his foot from the top of the building and, and go down with his shoe. And, and uh, again, the same thing. So it was just me, striped shirt on, comedy psycho killer um <laughs> and just the, the stunt man that looks kind of like you and the, and the dummy that's dressed exactly with the same striped shirt and same toque <laughs> thing, you know. talk about the three and musketeers the, uh, that's amazing in, in la takedown the wayne Grove dummy the white Sox were just a little too prominent <laughs> <laughs> It's a bit, the, the, the white socks are a bit incongruous to the open polyester shirt, but you know, it's a look. It was, it was, you know, the late eighties. It's a, it's, it's a look. It was late eighties. It was Wayne Grove. Wayne Grove's not known for his style. Although I brought a couple of pieces of my own to try and style him up a little bit because Michael had a sense of style and, um, oh my God, who was, this is one of the things that's interesting about, about that. He had, pioneered a, a fashion yeah. with Miami Vice. Dudes were wearing the pastels for the first time yeah. everywhere and pushing up the sleeves because DJ. And weirdly, you know, I brought a jacket in early on. It was just black and it was, it was um, Agnes B, black and red sort of houndstooth, but it looked psycho. Yes. And he looked. And I wore it in a couple of scenes in there. And, and, uh, it had style, but it, it had menace and you had never seen that jacket before anywhere. And so that, he liked that. And the costume designers really liked it. It was the woman, she used to have a shop, Betsy Johnson was the co costume designer. Yes. 
New York underground hipster. And she had the coolest um, costume assistants, too. I remember one was a professional dominatrix, Melody. She's <laughs> no longer with us either. She was fabulous. She had the most incredible stories. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's a podcast, One Melody Minute. We need. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Instead of doing interviews with her, I like recorded. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you've done interviews for your own research. Like, I need tell me about your weirdest guys. I need to know that traits. It was the weird. old guy in the wheelchair that wrapped himself in the American flag while she. Never, never mind. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> now if you'd asked me what we were going to talk about, <laughs> it would not have been that guy. <laughs> No. But I may not no. ever forget that. I may not ever forget. No. Oh, God. In honor of Melody. Um, but, uh, yeah, Betsy Johnson had such a, a dark New York underground vibe. And Michael, at a certain point in, I think when he started, first of all, when he changed the title from Hannah to, which is, I thought was, a, first of all, it's it's a the guy's name is Hannah, which is a girl's name. That's edgy to begin with. Uh, and he he picked, like, Scott, uh, may he rest in peace. Yes. Was, 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 a, was a wild, crazy character who, it was rumored, had been a street hustler. Yes. Uh, he was not really got, known as that. He, he certainly got the swagger of a street hustler. Like, he walks, like, yeah. I, 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 I don't know how to describe it. It's like, if you saw a pimp in a movie, you would say... Scott walks like that. Scott, he walks yeah, like that. He's Scott got that swagger. Plank. He and, and his name is Scott Plank. And I remember I would run into him like every now and again at a bar in LA. I, I remember even like, like some of it. He used to do this weird thing. Like he could do the one handed push ups or, uh, you know, while he was, he'd, he'd be drinking and he'd go, hey, carry on. And then, like do the one-handed push-ups and or the ones where you can clap behind your back or he could do weird physical things that were like dangerous and <laughs> like stunty weird things but they were like but he was like a street guy yes and uh and alex MacArthur, who's a sweet sweet guy i think Madonna had sort of discovered him in some way and put him in something. He's a beautiful guy. And yeah. so Ver were, Alex was very, 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 very striking and still. That was what's good about him. He was very still. I think that's one thing that yeah. carried over from both one carry over from both characters. That stillness. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they were both, it was really interesting. They had a, a, it was a totally different vibe, but they were, you could see where they could become TV stars oh, for sure. and, and, uh, and you know, the, there was a whole, there were the bad guy crew and there was the good guy crew. And we, we spent a couple of weeks going that to like the range and learning out work with all these guns. And, and I remember, you know, Rooker was one of the good guys back then. Now he'd be on the psycho crew now for sure. Big time. Um, Big time. <laughs> That's an, it's literally you and Rooker that like you and Rooker are the guys who are holding the fort in this movie is like the biggest stars. And it's like, it's, it, it is, it actually is a bit of a flex for heat because like 
there are, you know, when you've got like the, the Levine, like Levine famous for playing a psycho, he's like the number one offsider in heat. And similarly, Henry portrait of a serial killer Rooker is like right there, like playing a good guy. It's It's a, it's, it's a, yeah. it's a good like flex and he's good at it. He's good at it, but he is much more fun when he's being bad. Yeah. Yeah. That was just sort of the one little isolated straight period in Rooker's life. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I, so you're, were, so you're, so you're in the middle of production. Just so Hannah, it's edgy. You got this underground, you got these new guys, you got these m- amazing underground looks and facades. It was supposed to be a big hit TV series. Yeah. And it, Michael didn't get the time slot he wanted. This is what I always heard. Yeah. And, you know, and the LA takedown was, was tactically to go, look, we had Miami Vice, so we're going to go LA takedown and sort of have that continuity. Yeah, see, he starts to me, this is just, you know, with all due respect, because obviously he got his game back and his mojo back when it, went, when it became heat. But he, I, I felt like he started to second guess himself. Mm. And like a lot of actors do, Al Pacino has done it, where you, you, you see him falling back on things De Niro's done it uh instead of taking a risk you know but sometimes it's like Al I always felt like Al got the Academy Award when he did Scent of a Woman Mm. and in you know he did that explosive behavior in that yes and that somehow it's been really hard for him to resist the temptation to win that big approval yes again that he wants to explode he just wants to explode. And, and you know, with heat, like I was saying before, it was so justified, so warranted within the, 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 the tension of the piece yes. that it worked 100% for me in that it doesn't always work in no, other things. I, I, I agree. And, it's, it's part of, and you would know this better than anyone because being a character actor, you're so reliant on serving essential needs for narrative you know to and complimenting people it's like it's a complimentary performance he's at his highest highs and craziness only in interactions where he's trying to displace power and the ralph scene is about power right it's like staying in power you said it so perfectly of like i want to maintain this awkwardness i want to maintain you sitting you know obviously you're a bigger guy i can see you're a bigger guy i don't want to i don't want this to blow up i want to come in and i'm the big dog and this is going to happen and i'm going to leave you in the fallout and i'm going to walk out the door and it's the same with all those across heat, you know, it's the same with all those different interactions and, and interrogations. He's trying to get a rise out of people so many times or shock them and surprise them. But when you see him at his, uh, in his private moments or his more, I guess it's more authentic moments, especially the conversations he has with Justine at home um, earlier in the movie when he's having conversations with, um, when he's having conversations with De Niro, there is a quiet intensity and a dissatisfaction that's just so perfect. And it's, it, no, it, it doesn't exist unless those two Niro, poles interlock. And De Niro has that in spades too. It's just an interesting thing. And the point that I was making <clears throat> is Michael with the success of Miami Vice becoming the king of television, had this chance to do this underground LA thing and no leave the, the world that he had established and become king with in Miami and go and do this really underground LA thing, which 
you know, it's it's not the same. It's not like being on a speedboat in the turquoise waters of and and the deco hotels and the the the, the whole qualities of the pastel qualities of Miami and white pants and boat shoes and pet alligators. It's just a different scene. It's not even on the, it feels like a different planet. To suddenly go in the late eighties and suddenly go underground and dirty, dark monochrome monotone LA was, was a big risk. And I thought, all of his initial choices for the designers and the DP and the, and the costume designer were spot on. And it was a departure calling it Hannah, but then, Oh, we're going to start to, we're going to start. He started to, he started second guessing Betsy Johnson to bring, bring in, bring in my, uh, my vice ties, bring in, bring in my, my bring in. I want to see some different ties. So it was all of the stock stuff yes. that he had. And I remember when they would when they started wheeling these racks of pastel jackets and shiny silver ties and stuff, and I went, "Oh no, no. don't do it! Don't go there!" I know that I know that worked for you on that, but that's not this. You don't want that. And you know Trust what? Betsy. In in the in the grand scheme of where it goes, like you would know this better than anyone, is that reactionary dark undergrowth you know, 90s reactionary stuff. Like, if man hits with this show, Hannah, and it's the underground purity that you're talking about, like, it's right in the same realm as those things we just talked about, the Kings of New York's and the Bad Lieutenants and the all of the new, like, the new, new Hollywood yeah, stuff yeah. that's coming up, yeah. and it's indie and it's dark and it's gritty and it's not very pleasant. It and and uh, it, was, uh, it wouldn't have fit back then. That's why it didn't get the time slot he wanted. Yeah. And we wouldn't have had heat, yes. you know, if, if, if he'd, you know, it's all part of it. Sometimes it's like with an artist or with anybody, you don't know, you know, one door shuts, another one opens and you, you don't know the reason why when you turn one job down, you, you, you take one job and you, you turn another one down. It, it, it's, the vicissitudes are, are fascinating and you, you can track it and, only in retrospect and, and see, oh, that's why, it, or it couldn't have worked out any other way. But yeah, he, uh, he, he was trying to get a series, didn't get the time slot he wanted. He thought it would be, I think, um, I, I, somebody can correct me down the line, but this is what Guzman, did you ever talk to him? No. Well, he's, he's just a character that's always worked with, with Michael and, on so many different projects and he was there and I, I can't remember if it was him or someone else that told me that that, that was the skinny on it that uh, he, he didn't get the time slot he wanted and that uh, so he pulled it and released it as a movie of the week in Europe or as a feature maybe it was released as a feature in Europe and then it was shown here as a movie of the week in in, in like English language countries um, and particularly France France has got a massive you know has a massive connection with Michael Mann stuff, but like in Australia, it would have come on television as like a TV movie. It absolutely went to England. I think maybe as a feature into some cinemas, it definitely went to cinemas in France. Um, and there were some other European countries that it came out theatrically always as LA takedown as the precursor, but yeah, 
you know, that's that's that weird thing where, you know, the different rights in the different countries, it just sort of got disseminated and was found and it was definitely in video stores in Oz and things like that. But I never saw a DVD of it, that's for sure, until like later when I bought my own DVD uh, the, um, uh, from Amazon. I think many years ago there was like a, a very old-timey DVD that you could get of just LA Takedown as a thing. But, you know, one door closed and another open to what I would argue is easily the greatest action movie and maybe the best crime movie ever made. And 25 years later and two years into the project, uh, two years into a project, uh, you know, 130 now, probably 131 hours talking about it, it definitely opened another door that is deeply influential and ahead of its time in many ways. You know, you can see heat written through so many movies in the last 25 years. It's unbelievable. You think about it, getting to shoot the whole thing as the pilot, um, was like a dress rehearsal. It yes. was getting to do a full dress rehearsal before shooting it with ultimately the best actors ever, you know, the yes. and the yeah. taking on those roles and then getting this star cast in all the other roles. It's, it's unbelievable when you think about it because you got to rehearse the whole thing out. And then, and then do, and do a live rewrite. And go, yeah, this is what I want to expand. Yeah. This is what I want to take to the next level. Yeah. This one I want yeah. to do. Well, you know what? Xander Berkeley, I mean, you're you're you've told us that you're an artist and if folks you want to check out at Xanderberkeley.net, you can follow him on Twitter at Xander Berkeley. Um I think that we're shutting Xanderberkeley.net, the the guy that, that started that and uh oh, you ran shutting, it for a long time. You shutting it down? It, it, yeah, that one's Closing out, we're going to uh, the real Xanderberkeley.com. The real Xanderberkeley.com. I'll make sure I link it um, if I can. Otherwise, I'll link it on Twitter. No, that's fine. I just want to say I am so thankful and grateful to have gotten a chance to talk to you. I'm so glad that we could chat. This has been one of my favorite conversations of 178 episodes of this series. Uh, you're an absolute treasure and um, it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you about this. And I'm sure that there are people who are listening who are fans of yours who are like, you didn't talk about this movie, you didn't talk about this, but I'm sorry, the impact of Ralph on, the, on our community and you as Wayne Grow um, is just too gargantuan for us not to wrestle almost exclusively with that. But uh, you're the best yeah, and this- and this has been so great. And just thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. Well, you're a total pleasure yourself. It was great to meet you and talk to you. I've been honored and delighted. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of One Heat Minute. We might catch you next time on another episode of One Heat Minute around the corner. We don't know what corner that's going to be, but talk to you soon.